Um, well, thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for uh, uh, inviting me here tonight. And uh, it's certainly a pleasure to talk about um, Japanese uh, energy policy in comparative context. Uh, looking around the room, I can tell you right now that everyone has a different interest and different focus. Uh, some people here only care about social science, and if this were just a social science presentation, I would start with the puzzle, I would go into the hypothesis, I would do the methodology, and we would be very focused on that. Uh, if you're an energy specialist, all you care about are the numbers and the number crunching and the komakai <laughs> details uh, as relates to energy policy. And then there's people in the middle who uh, are interested in the topic, uh, generally speaking. Having spoken with uh, Chris about what is best, we're going to go sort of a middle-of-the-road uh, presentation that um, starts off um, with what I like. I always like to start off with a Japanese proverb, um, kotowaza. The, the one that I, I happen to love is the one that uh, Junokomura does not love, which is, uh, um, which um, I think is quite apropos um, for this discussion uh, because literally translated, it means the frog in the well knows not of the ocean. Um, now, I've always understood this kotowaza uh, to mean something along the lines of narrow self-interest rarely, if ever, sees the big picture. And you can debate whether a small frog can be defined as narrow self-interest. But if you think about it, a small frog living in a well doesn't really know much about what's happening in the outside world. And so I think it would be applied fairly well to the whole concept of energy policy. And in, relink, in uh, linking to this idea of perception, image, and how you perceive your self-interest relative to the outside world, I want to focus on, tonight at least, four interrelated puzzles. Puzzle number one is how, despite all of the criticisms that you will find in Japan, blackouts in Japan are something of a rarity. Now, uh, when Hurricane Sandy uh, took place in uh, late October of 2012, it was a foregone conclusion that all the lights would go out with the storm. Japan has numerous typhoons that pass by all the time. Uh, it was inconceivable that the lights ever go out. That's how attuned uh, the public is, or I should say takes for granted the idea uh, that the power will always be on. And the utility companies never really exploit this to their advantage. They take it as their responsibility, that this is something that has to happen. Now, this is one puzzle of four. The second puzzle is one that you all know very well, which is Japan has some of the highest nominal electricity prices in the world. If you compare Japan, for example, with uh, Denmark, the Danes would argue it's not their fault that their electricity prices are so high. Here's Denmark. Half of Denmark's electricity price is taxed. Therefore, it's not their fault. Okay, in the case of Japan, why are electricity prices so high? We're going to talk about that tonight, both for the industrial and for the residential, and look at it from an international perspective. But more importantly, in the terms of the puzzle, why is it that no one cared for such a long time? Why did people put up with it? In terms of perception, we're back to the frog. 
in the West. Why did they not care about high electricity prices for so long? The third puzzle um, is something that I find fascinating, um, and that is the deteriorating financial status of the utility companies in Japan for over 30 years, and nobody said a word. No one. Now, I happen here to show Tokyo Electric Power Corporation because it's the largest of the utility companies. But what you're looking at here, um, just over the, the past 10 years or so, is a deterioration in their generated cash moving uh, in a downward trend. And then you subtract what we call in the financial industry free cash, which is you subtract all of their purchases of property, of power plants, of transmission wires, everything uh, to uh, which we would call capital expenditures or in Japanese setsubitoshi. If you subtract all that, the blue line shows an even worse financial position than the red line. And then you have free cash two, which is the yellow. This is the actual um, uh, borrowings um, that you have in, in the company. And then finally, the black which is how much uh, money you can get from banks, from corporate bonds, uh, and so forth to pay off uh, your, your debts. And what you remarkably see is just a complete deterioration over time. Tokyo Electric Power Corporation, in fact, all the utility companies over time faced uh, downward financial deterioration, not only in terms of profitability, but also in terms of cash flow. And yet the companies, the shareholders and the stakeholders rarely, if ever, said anything. This is a puzzle. Why? Why didn't they do anything about it? We'll talk a little bit about that, too. And then finally, for me, the political scientist part of me finds this the most fascinating of all, is when we look at things such as power restructuring and we look at policy outputs in terms of votes over time, there is a clear variation starting from the 1990s moving forward. Why is it that in 1995, everyone, including the Japan Communist Party, wanted electricity restructuring in this country? Every single political party, every single bureaucrat, every single energy intensive industry, every single consumer group, everybody wanted power restructuring. And then, over time, things deteriorated until finally in 2007, nobody wanted it at all. Why? Why did that happen? That's the fourth and final puzzle. And all of these, I would argue, link back to one important thing. And that thing is the cost of NIMBY. And the cost of NIMBY is linked to perception and how you perceive your interests relative to the rest of the world. Right? And so this is the theme tonight. The frog, it's whoever you say the frog is, in relative to the actors, but it all comes back to the costs of NIMBY. Now, in terms of books, and uh, I think everyone here has must have read at least one uh, book, and there's some, some very excellent books out there about environmental politics uh, and NIMBY politics. Uh, in Japan, if you haven't read any of these books, I highly recommend them. They give you a sense for why NIMBY matters so much in the context of Japan's energy policy. First and foremost, energy especially electricity, is not an ordinary commodity. You cannot really save it in large quantities. There is some talk about, of course, hydroelectric pump storage being savable. Uh, but other than that, 
on the whole, generally speaking, you cannot save it in large quantities. Electricity also is price inelastic. That is to say, if you are a residential customer, um, you will buy it regardless of how expensive it is, even if you're cringing. Why? It's basically what economists would call a necessity good. It is not a luxury good. You need it. Even the most ardent uh, anti-nuclear activist grudgingly would acknowledge that you need electricity. So legally, also, in Japan, NIMBYism matters because of universal service. Universal service is a legal concept which basically says that you, as a customer, are entitled to have electricity if you ask for it, even if you live on the farthest island away, even if you live in the most remote mountain, the electric power company, one of the 10, has to bit the service, transmission, and distribution wires to you somehow. And this is one of the reasons why, in the case of Okinawa, electricity prices are so high, because of people living out in far off islands, and they have to somehow get the electricity to them. Declining reserve margins. The Japanese call it kyokyu yobiritsu. Kyokyu yobiritsu means um, the difference between peak supply and peak demand. Uh, in Japan, it's been declining now for the past 30 years as a result of NIMBY. Uh, in Germany, for example, the, the reserve margins are around 30%. In Spain, they're around 25%. In Japan, in the case of TEPCO, they were around 2% uh, only four or five years ago. Um, and there's quite extensive data going all the way back to the 1950s that shows the decline in reserve margins as a result of NIMBY. The lower the reserve margin falls, the more dangerous it becomes um, for uh, power transmission because it takes power to transmit power. So locally, electricity is viewed both as a public good and as a public bad. However, when we come to try to understand Japan's unique problems, Japan is worse in a sense, or I should say not worse, but different from Germany in the sense that it literally is an island unto itself. It is not connected to the cheaper electric power in Russia or Taiwan or even South Korea, uh, whereas in the case of Germany, they are connected virtually to all of their neighbors uh, and can buy and sell at will in terms of surplus electric capacity. Japan cannot even do that within its own country. Within its own country, it is divided by two different hertz systems, uh, a 50 hertz system in the east and a 60 hertz system in the west. This is an accident of history of the 19th century when there were no regulations until 1911 to deal with this issue. And consequently, um, different companies uh, at the time, it was uh, Tokyo Electric Power and Light was um, getting their power from the United States. And uh, um, Osaka Electric Power and Light was getting their technology uh, from a German company. The American company was GE, General Electric. The German company was AGM or AG. I can't recall which one it was. But um, once this started, it's very difficult to tear it all down and start again. And they've actually have to deal with this problem today if you talk about unbundling. How much is it going to cost? How long will it take? What will it do to consumer prices? What will it do to the taxpayer and the budget? These are issues that um, will come up at some point. Now, in terms of decision making, um, just to give you a sense, I, I happen to be highly influenced by uh, three books. Um, 
uh, there's many I could I could cite, but uh, three books which um, gave me a, a good sense in Japan for the decision making process um, for the energy sector. Um, effectively, Mr. Samuel and Mr. Kamen would argue that nobody controls Japanese energy power policy. No one actor runs the show. Uh, it's actually what you would call reciprocal consent. It's sort of a give and take process over a long historical period. Um, I, in my research, have no reason to, to dispute that. Um, but in terms of my focus, it has been on uh, the Shingikai, the Ministerial Advisory Councils, and how their decisions are made, and as well as the Diet, and how their decisions are made. Uh, Advice and Consent is an excellent book that deals with that, uh, looking at how decisions are made uh, in the Shingikai for uh, six or seven different sectors and case studies. And finally, we come to um, what in 1993 was an award-winning uh, political science theory called Punctuated Equilibrium, um, started by two political scientists, Frank Baumgartner and Brian Jones, who essentially argued that, yes, interests exist, and interests do try to maximize their interests, but it works within subsystems of policy perception, otherwise known as policy image. And every sector uh, has its own image. If I were to say to you nuclear power in the 1950s and 1960s, you would have a largely positive uh, image of these, um, these issues. Um, however, uh, there is a large weight and drag on existing institutions, market structures, and norms, so it takes a lot of new information in order to change opinions. And therefore, uh, it is not just a question of one single actor dominating the process or political resources um, setting the agenda in terms of being able to buy votes or advertise sufficiently so that the consumer believes what you want them to believe. It's far more complicated than that. Um, but ultimately, there are constraints that actors have limited time, energy, and resources, and therefore have a certain way of processing information. And uh, so ultimately, as far as Baumgartner and Jones would be concerned, policy image shifts create windows of opportunity. And you know, political scientists, there are all kinds of names to, to, to talk about this issue. Problem representation, effect priming, salami tactics, feature extraction, issue framing, master narratives, attribute-based information processing, I love that one, um, and cognitive architecture. All of these things are different ways of saying the same thing. It's talking about spin. You're faced with an issue, and you're going to focus on certain attributes or certain facts over other facts in order to push an agenda or perhaps not even push an agenda, just how you think about an issue in terms of how it relates to your self-interest. And it's these issue framing, what I call framing, um, that are quite important when dealing with the four puzzles that we have. For example, why is it now the rest of the world, with the notable exception of three countries, have effectively stayed with their nuclear power? Right? This is something of a strange phenomena. If you were to read the Western media, you would think that these countries don't exist. It's only about Germany, Switzerland, and Italy, and of course Japan, because that is what you constantly read in the newspapers. Every once in a while you'll read about Saudi Arabia or Vietnam, but it's not the dominant frame. This is something of, of an interesting issue, considering the fact that nuclear restarts 
uh, have been increasing now since 2002. Um, and there are, I shouldn't say restarts, I should say nuclear starts, new, new uh, capacity. And if you look uh, worldwide, uh, it continues to grow in terms of projections moving forward. So um, what I found interesting is that if you come back to this issue of perception, there is a large difference between average people and or political authority um, and energy experts. This is a study did, published in the American Political Science Review, which right after Chernobyl looked in the United States and wanted to see interviewing various uh, sample sizes and various uh, sectors, um, what they thought about nuclear power. Are nuclear plants safe? And what you'll notice here is that the lower the score, the lower their opinion of whether or not the plants are safe. Who thought the nuclear plants are safe despite Chernobyl and Three Mile Island? Most energy, 75.8% of energy experts continue to believe that nuclear power was safe. 98.7% of the, of the uh, sample size of uh, 72 thought, and they were nuclear energy experts, of course they thought nuclear power uh, was safe. And even the military, 86% of 152 people thought that nuclear power continued to be safe. Everybody else had a negative view. Why? The authors of this article argued it is because that they were objectively looking at the issues, whereas everyone else had limited time, energy, and resources, and therefore they had to process what they read in the newspaper in relative to their emotional fears. That was their argument um, in this review, in this article, which was published in 1987. So if we come back um, to media coverage, one of, the, one of the fascinating issues you'll find is whether an article is positive, negative, or neutral in terms of a given subject. And this happens to be looking at the United States media coverage of nuclear power in the United States uh, and nuclear technology. And they look over uh, a very large period up until 1993 when the original uh, publication came out. And what they saw was a very large increase in coverage of nuclear power, but it became increasingly negative over time. And this happened to correspond with the change in the agenda in the United States moving increasingly anti-nuclear over time. In Japan, you'll find a similar pattern for virtually any subject related to energy over time, which is quite fascinating. This happens to be looking at electric power, uh, electric electricity deregulation, um, deregulation and just articles focusing on electricity prices over a long period compared to real electricity prices that are inflation adjusted. You can see that electricity prices don't really go, they don't really move very much. Nothing was really corrected after deregulation and yet interest rises and falls and coincides with the rise and fall of political attention in Japan. Now, when I did interviews with politicians who were responsible back in the 1990s for electricity deregulation, all of them surprisingly said to me, we kept reading in the newspapers about 
the problems with Japan's high electricity prices. In fact, uh, former Prime Minister Hosokawa uh, is perhaps famous for his, his attitude that uh, he kept reading in Asahi Shimbun about these high electricity prices, just like he was reading about all these other problems in Japan. So when he finally came to power, let's do something about that. <laughs> that became the attitude. Media matters. Make no mistake about it. But media attention also matters. Now, what happens with uh, the latest focus of uh, a positive image of renewable energy, it's the same concept all over again. If you are bombarded every single day telling you that renewable energy will solve all of the world's problems, it's very likely that you'll end up believing it. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. If you read enough of it, it's true. Just like if you read enough that nuclear power is going to kill all of you, that's true too. Because you read it constantly. And it taps into preconceived notions, uh, especially if you read enough of it. Now, as it turns out, uh, I chose these four quotes simply because um, they're representative of uh, uh, the prevailing positive image we have of renewable energy in Japan um, from the Wind Power Development Association, the Japan Photovoltaic Energy Association, um, Tetsunari Ida, who is a very well-known uh, activist of renewable energy sources in Japan. And they all have different uh, very optimistic views of uh, where wind power, solar power uh, will be going in the future. And the word used over and over again, of course, is potential. That's the magic word. There is a potential for something. Now, in terms of framing of Japan's market realities, how does the potential match the market reality? Now, one of the things to look at, first of all, is the battle over explaining electricity prices and what the reality was. The gray here is Japan's electricity prices um, over a long period. There are actually over 40 different electricity prices in Japan based on watts and voltage uh, and whether they're commercial, residential, industrial, and so forth. Um, I take an average here uh, just to make it easier to illustrate what happened, generally speaking. Now, what you notice is between 1951 and 1973, Japan's electricity prices were essentially flat. And they were also essentially uh, comparable to the rest of the world. Then suddenly, uh, in 1973, they skyrocket. Um, and we know the reasons for that. It's because the fuel cost as a percentage of the electricity price also went up. Now, why did the fuel price uh, the fuel component go up. Well, we all know the story. Um, Israel successfully uh, held off the advances of three Arab countries, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, in the Yom Kippur War. Israel um, was victorious. OPEC decided to punish all those that supported Israel and therefore politically rose the price of oil in response. Japan, at the time, had over 73% of its uh, electricity generation coming from imported oil since 1961 uh, when it was liberalized. And therefore, that was a large impact when the price skyrocketed. So too did electricity prices. Today, they've decided, uh, the government and the utility companies, to uh, move away from oil-powered uh, electricity generation um, despite the increase 
but what ultimately happens is that as you move to other fossil fuel prices uh, sources, um, whether we're talking about oil or LNG or sometimes coal, they tend to move uh, uh, together with a lag uh, because of their long-term contract links. This presents a large problem for um, the utility companies um, as the, the price continues to rise today. But what I wanted to focus on here was the fact that despite the fuel cost falling uh, after oil prices came back down in 1985, electricity prices still stayed high. And so you had the battle of frames, of perception, of imagery. Why are electricity prices still so high? And this is where politicians and activist groups, uh, policy entrepreneurs, all took this window of opportunity to explain away Japan's high electricity prices. And the first argument was from the Japan Communist Party that they're all a bunch of corrupt bastards. Okay? They get too much money, the executives are overpaid, and that's why the electricity prices are so high. Here's the problem. The blue line is actually the personnel costs in Japan uh, as a percentage of the electricity price. And over time, personnel costs continue to fall. Now, I went to go interview the Japan Communist Party, and I, I showed them this. And they looked at it, and they shook their head, and they said, well, we can't trust anything that these companies say. They're obviously lying. Uh, therefore, they just dismissed it without going into more details. Well, if that's your frame of reference, then yes, of course, it's better to dismiss it. But is there something else that we can possibly look at? The investment banks during the same period argued the reason electricity prices were so high was because these companies were over-leveraged. There was just too many bonds, and therefore the interest payments were too high. Several investment banks and financial analysts argued this over and over again without any evidence. Here's the problem. The black line is actually the interest payments as a percentage of the electricity price. Once again, interest kept falling. So this can't really be the reason why Japan's electricity prices are so high. Well, the other argument was, well, it's got to be taxes. There's all these hidden taxes out there. There's the electric power development tax. There's the enterprise tax. There's the corporate tax. There's uh, my favorite, Zatsuze miscellaneous tax. Nobody knows. I mean, there's all these taxes. That's what we're paying for. That's the reason. Well, actually, as a percentage of the total, um, this is not the reason why either electricity prices were high. It was something else. Now, if you look at what the something else was, taking a look at Japan's overall electricity price, you can agree that it was fuel. But then it comes down to basically three things. Number one, what the Japanese call shuzenhi, otherwise known as maintenance costs. Now, maintenance costs actually started to rise over time. Why are the maintenance costs going up? And they weren't just for nuclear power plants. It was for everything as a component of the generation cost. Maintenance costs come up, came up because you needed to provide more safety, uh, safety provisions, uh, more manpower in the, in the dealing with the security not only of nuclear power plants, but also hydroelectric dams, also conventional coal plants, and other high-density power sources because of the media perception that they were unsafe. Now, the utility companies were reacting to this, but it was not maintenance costs that were the primary problem. You have depreciation, what the Japanese call genka shokyakuhi. Um, this is a large increase over time. Depreciation was rising steadily because the 
tangible fixed asset costs were rising, and they were rising because construction costs were rising. And why were construction costs rising? Well, if you look at all the data, it became more and more difficult to site, license, and finally construct power plants in Japan. And not only nuclear power plants, everything. Once again, what was the problem? NIMBY. Not in my backyard. Everybody wants electricity. They just don't want it in their backyard. And this became a huge problem in terms of the lead time, so the siting, licensing, and construction of power plants, no matter what the power plant was. Purchased power from other utility companies was not a, a large reason for the, the price hike, although it did rise over time. Then you got the real thing, sonota other, the other category. What the heck is that? Utility companies don't want to talk about the other category, but we all know what the other category is. It's compensation. Okay? It's to be less charitable payoffs. That's what they are. It's compensation for everything to get plants built. The big mistake that people make is they think it only means nuclear power plants. No, this is wrong. It's everything. So when you look at these together, I couldn't fit everything I wanted to in this chart because I had all of the <laughs> I had all the construction costs over time for all the different power sources. I couldn't put it here. Everything rises over time per kilowatt. Everything. Nuclear power is the classic example of becoming more and more expensive, not only in Japan, but worldwide over time. In Japan, it's worse because Japan is a limited geographically constrained island economic superpower that needs energy to survive. So now there's massive pressure. You have to build, you have to make sure there's no blackouts, and you have to do it in a timely fashion. What do you do? Well, originally the answer was thermal capacity. They tried to move towards nuclear uh, increasingly as fossil fuel prices and issues of environmental safety in the 1990s um, made it more and more difficult um, to stick with fossil fuels. And the fact that in the case of uh, uh, hydroelectric power, most of the available sites were captured. But if you do a, a rational cost plus benefit analysis, which people still debate and challenge and, and discuss today, there are no choices uh, that are easy. Everything is, is in a sense, a trade-off over one thing or another, depending on what you want to look at. Are you only interested in the life of the asset itself? Are you only interested in the cost that you're going to pay? Are you only interested in the environmental uh, friendliness of the device? In other words, uh, carbon dioxide emissions? Are you interested in the damage to the environment overall? Are you interested in the fatality rates? How many people die? Uh, in the extraction of resources. These are very complex, weighty subjects with no easy answers. But in trying to uh, answer these questions, people have to look at these and reach some sort of conclusion as to what is the greater good for the greater number. Now, the argument was we've got to move away from uh, thermal power because 60% of the generation cost of thermal power is imported fossil fuels, where only 15% is for nuclear. So therefore, uh, from a uh, yearly operational basis, theoretically, this makes sense. The problem is, over time, over time, what was once considered 
appropriate, which was hydroelectric power because it was the cheapest uh, and uh, most stable and environmentally friendly power source. Uh, most of the was most of the sites were captured over time, so it took a, a, a lower and lower uh, percentage of of, uh, of power in Japan. But also the rise of NIMBY made it very difficult as well to find uh, new sites in hydroelectric power. They then started to import coal in the 1960s um, to to uh, take up the gap, but coal prices continue to rise, and of course they are. Um, there's issues with whether or not they are clean, and of course they have a very high carbon dioxide emission ratio. Uh, and of course, you probably heard about all the people that die in China and elsewhere extracting the coal, which is not politically nice. People would like to get away from that. They originally thought oil was the answer, uh, but we've learned through the 1970s why that was a mistake in terms of not only uh, economic impact, but also energy security. So the red was to move towards nuclear, um, having around approximately 30% of the total electricity generation from nuclear reach as high as 50% um, by the time we got out to 2030. Um, now the big buzzword is LNG, liquefied natural gas, which is taking up most of the slack from nuclear power uh, because, strangely enough, if you look at the top bars here, oops, sorry, the top bars are renewable energy. Why, why isn't there more renewable energy yet in this country despite the uh, overwhelming political support for renewable energy, right? Well, first and foremost, they finally did a, uh, a poll and they said, do you support the phase out of nuclear power? Virtually, uh, approximately 80% in the Nikkei uh, uh, newspaper back in June 2011 said yes. They said, do you favor moving towards renewable energy? Said, yes. Yes. Seventy percent of the respondents said yes, we favor it. Then they, f they asked the important question, how much do you really want to move to renewable energy? How much are you willing to pay for it? Seventy-five percent of the respondents said we would favor it only if electricity prices rose as much as ten percent and no more. The other 30% said, we would tolerate a 20% increase in electricity prices and no more. And basically, there's your problem in terms of NIMBY because if you look over time, we'll skip over this, whether we're looking at Germany or we're looking at Spain or we're looking at any of the countries that have liberalized and moved towards renewable energy, electricity prices continue to go up. They never go down, they go up. Now this is in itself a major problem because the original economic idea, the perception, was that if you deregulate a market, prices will fall to their marginal cost through competitive principles. But that's not what actually happened in the real world. In the real world what happened was prices went up anyway. Now the argument is, well, the prices went up because fuel costs are rising or because there's a feed-in tariff for renewable energy and therefore that has to push up prices. That might all well be true. However, from an empirical standpoint, prices have still risen anywhere between 100 and 300 percent in such countries as Germany. And so now there is a political debate, even in Germany, starting, albeit small, about what to do. Certainly energy policy journals are interested in this. 
and Japanese decision makers are interested in this. But even if that were not the problem, one of the technical problems to deal with in Japan is Japan's high population density ratio, that is to say the number of people per square kilometer. And Japan is one of the most densely populated countries on the planet. Currently, there are about 365 people per square kilometer versus only about three people per square kilometer in Iceland. Now, the argument for Iceland is, well, we are 100% renewable energy in Iceland. We are 70% hydroelectric and 30% geothermal, and Japan could have as much, if not more, geothermal power because of its volcanic areas if it just wanted to. Well, that's all well and good if it just wanted to. The problem with geothermal, first and foremost, it's not here. Geothermal has a watts per square meter of about 0.3 watts per square meter, meaning it's very, it's, uh, its density is very low, its power density, meaning that you would need a lot of land to do and extract just geothermal power. The areas where geothermal is best or most optimal is Kyushu, Tohoku, and Hokkaido. Best sites are up in Hokkaido. 70% of the sites, unfortunately, are in national parks. The Ministry of Environment doesn't like that very much, that you go in there and disrupt the parks, but they're willing to find ways to do it. The problem is getting around NIMBYism, once again, is something of a, a, an obstacle. Now, renewable energy activists have discovered the same thing as anti-nuclear activists in the sense that if you can control the frame, you can control the policy decision-making process. What's interesting is that in terms of anti-wind, anti-solar, anti-tidal, to a lesser extent, anti-renewable energy groups have suddenly took off over the past 10 years. There are over 100 anti-wind organizations in the United States alone. There are another two dozen in Canada. There are over 12 in Germany. There are even, there's even one, in, I was surprised, there's even one in the Netherlands. Um, they're everywhere, suddenly. Japan has already four anti-wind organizations, and they're growing. They don't want the windmills in their backyard. Why don't they want windmills? There are a lot of reasons, they argue. Some of them are purely aesthetics. They're ugly. They don't want to look at them. The other is what the Japanese call fushabyo, which has a very nice technical sounding name in English, wind turbine syndrome, which basically means that your head might explode. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> the, book, the, the book, Wind Turbine Syndrome, uh, published by uh, a medical doctor in the United States, uh, looked at a large sample size of people who lived in the vicinity of windmills. They were all having severe headaches. They were all hospitalized. They, had, they were suffering from vertigo. They were suffering from stress. Um, their eardrums were hurting. Um, wind turbine syndrome suddenly became the latest NIMBY miracle. Now we have a new excuse to not want something in our backyard. It's hurting us all. Solar panels are just as, um, what I should say is, uh, objected in the United States um, uh, in large-scale solar panels, that is, uh, mostly for their expense and what some people like to refer to as land sprawl. There's just takes up too much space, uh, and they're aesthetically unattractive in areas like Florida, Ohio, and California, which has successfully blocked already uh, 11 large-scale solar sites, so much so that the government now is forced to put them in deserts. 
Unfortunately, in the case of Japan, they have no deserts. So where do you put the renewable large-scale sites? Well, if you take a look at the problem, this is something um, I, I've shown to, uh, because I wanted to see if, if uh, everyone is on the same page. I, I've shown these calculations to uh, power companies, to bureaucrats, to Japanese politicians, to American, Canadian politicians, uh, basically everyone who is in the decision-making process, and I bring up power density. Here's the problem. Here's Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, uh, another site in California, and a third in France, all using similar technologies for photovoltaic. The assault capacity for Nellis Air Force Base is 14 megawatts over 140 acres of land. That works out to be 566,000 square meters. If you did the math, that's 24.7 watts per square meter. If you calculate, and here's the Here's the uh, jargon, the load factor, which is the number, amount of time that the sun actually shines and is actually optimal uh, to receive the power over the day. Uh, it's approximately, on average, 10%. 10% of 24.7 watts per square meter actually works out to about 2, maybe 2.5 watts per square meter. So if you were to replace uh, 1 gigawatt, say like a nuclear power plant of 1 gigawatt, at 2.4 watts per square meter, you would need 404 square kilometers or 156 square miles. Where do you find the land for this? This is a question. In the United States, they say, we'll put them in the deserts. Once again, where are you going to put them in Japan? Especially when it generally works out, no matter how many of these you look at, they generally are within the same range, within the 2 to 20 watt per square meter range. Now, you could get around all of this by building it in someone's backyard, somebody else. Let someone else worry about it. Let the Chinese deal with it, which is actually, people are saying, yeah, that's a good idea. Let the Chinese deal with it. So along comes First Solar, an American solar power company. They tie up with China, Beijing, and in Ordo City, in Inner Mongolia, they are now building a 2 gigawatt or 2,000 megawatt PV large-scale farm over 16,000 acres, which is 64 million square meters, uh, which works out to about 30 watts per square meter. And at 10% efficiency, um, that's about 3.8 watts per square meter. That's basically this uh, large square here at 35,296 square miles. Now, suppose you talk about cost and you want to get it to Japan. This is what Masayoshi Sung, the president of SoftBank, is talking about. This is what we'll do. We'll build the super grid, which connects all of Asia, and then we will bring the power to Japan, thereby avoiding nimbyism in Japan, which is a great idea, actually, on paper. It sounds good. I actually thought it was a great idea, to be honest. I'm not being sarcastic. I think it's a great idea. Here's the problem. Who's going to pay for all of this, right? Nobody wants to talk about building the supergrid and building a massive solar farm in the desert of the, the Gobi Desert. Now, First Solar says that just to build this project alone is five to six billion dollars, just the small 2,000 megawatt project. That works out to about three dollars a watt 
And uh, if you wanted to replace all of Japan's existing capacity, which is about 280 gigawatts of power, how much would you need? Well, it, you would need about 91.4 billion, uh, oh, sorry, you would need about uh, uh, 274 uh, billion uh, dollars or about 21.6 trillion yen. That's about 4.5% of Japanese GDP, and this does not count the supergrid and negotiating with North Korea on building wires through their, their country, uh, not to mention building through South Korea. Now, what they have found out, they've actually done studies already. Even the most ardent proponent says it's just going to cost one trillion yen just to build the connection between Pusan and Fukuoka, just one trillion. Then you have to completely revamp the entire um, grid system to make it more accommodating for the, the fluctuations in the load. Uh, that means this has to be completely re refurbished as well. That's another 10 trillion. Then you need to refurb, uh, build the existing wires all through Japan and of course, uh, sorry, all through Asia. Uh, and then of course, um, the actual generation itself. All in all, it could be as high as 40 trillion, perhaps 50 trillion yen when all is said and done. When I talked to the Ministry of Finance about this, I said, um, do you support all this? And they just kind of stared at me. Um, I, I said, are you talking about this? They said, oh yes, we, we have talked about this. It's not going anywhere. Um, because who's going to pay for it? The, the METI um, was given the option within their limited budget, which is 1% of the total national budget. If they wanted to cough up the money, which they don't have, feel free. You can raise electricity prices, that's an option, already being among the highest in the world. But the general public has already said that they're not going to put up with anything that's beyond 10% increase to what is already high electricity prices. And of course, you can make the taxpayer pay for it. Why not? Abenomics says that we're going to use fiscal policy in order to push um, for the jump-starting of the Japanese economy. Why not, instead of paying for other boondoggles, why not spend it all on energy? And in the meantime, give something back to China and the Koreans in the form of an entirely new grid that we're paying for. Nobody takes that seriously. And some, some of the people in the audience are laughing because this is just politically impossible to do, unfortunately. But theoretically, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? I, I certainly thought it was a great idea until you talk about the money. Uh, and of course, you get around nimbyism. The other problem is wind, and wind is even worse than solar because Japan's wind speeds are much lower than uh, the rest of the world. Uh, I tried to fit on the next page. <laughs> I was looking at over 500 different data points, and I can't show them to you uh, in detail. But basically, you're looking at about 2 watts per square meter again. Um, and depending on how much the wind blows, if it's uh, an average load factor of wind only blowing about 30% a day, it's about 1.3 watts per square meter. So this just gives you some data. Just for Hokkaido alone, the highest data point wind speed is 8.2 meters per second uh, throughout the entire year. The average is 6.8, and that's in the most, uh, the highest wind point, which is Wakanai Airport, the highest point in Hokkaido. Um, the higher the wind speed, the more energy you can produce, theoretically, in terms of kinetic energy. 
Unfortunately, as you can see from the data points, Japan's wind speeds are very are relatively low compared to Germany, uh, to Denmark, and uh, including uh, Oregon, where they're anywhere between five to seven watts per square meter. Uh, sorry, five to seven uh, meters per second. So to calculate, uh, just replacing all of renewable energy uh, with uh, new, uh, replace, uh, so for example, 20% renewable energy just from onshore wind, you would li literally need the equivalent of the entire island of Kyushu, and nobody could live there, just to create onshore wind farms that are spaced evenly apart um, in order to um, capture the appropriate amount of wind. If you wanted 100% wind power from onshore wind, uh, with the assumption that it's 1.3 watts per square meter at 30 uh, percent load factor, you would literally need everything which is in the blue here. The entire island of Hokkaido, Tohoku, Hokuriku, and Chubu, uh, which of course uh, theoretically doesn't even really work because the wind doesn't always blow, so you're always going to need backup sources. Okay? So this just gives you a sense of how much land you would need and how big of a problem this is realistically in terms of fighting NIMBY. Uh, I think you're going to have a very difficult time even dealing with uh, something the size of Kyushu, are you going to be able to deal with something that's completely 100% renewable energy in a country which has a very bifurcated grid system and it's very difficult to deal with? And uh, right now, if you want to look at this analytically, the white areas are all the urban areas and the black is the forest, okay? That's where all the sites now are for, for, for solar plants, all the pink. Where are they mostly? There's 217 sites, uh, right now 236 megawatts. 120 sites uh, are less than one megawatt. That's about 26 megawatts in total, mostly in the urban areas. Where are they? They're on rooftops. That's basically where they are. The rest are um, smaller sites um, that are finding difficulty in, in where to place them. Uh, wind power, same issue. Nobody really wants them in the urban areas, so they're forced to build them along the coastline where the wind power, the, the wind speeds are, are slightly higher. Um, but once again, now they're facing NIMBY opposition. So what are you going to do um, with only 374 sites that are only producing with, uh, with feed-in tariffs right now, 2.5 gigawatts? Same problem with geothermal. It's only worse. You can only go where the, the volcanic uh, sites are uh, and where the magmatic heat sources are highest. And right now there's only 17 sites, um, a few in Tohoku, one in the Tokyo area, and the rest um, in Kyushu. You could, if you wanted, face most of the sites up in Hokkaido. But as I said before, they're located in the national parks. And once again, NIMBY becomes an issue, NIMBY in terms of uh, environmental conservation, NIMBY in terms of hot spring ownerships and the fear of what it will do to their businesses, NIMBY in terms of aesthetics. Nuclear we'll forget about. Uh, <laughs> pump storage, this is the final answer to everyone's problems to deal with the intermittency problem. If we just had enough to pump storage, and by the way, pump storage is hydroelectric power. It has two different, you have a, a, a lower uh, reservoir and a higher reservoir. Now, what 
traditionally happens is they are artificially constructed at nighttime, low, cheap, sometimes nuclear power pays for the pumping of the hydro water back up to the higher reservoir, and then the higher reservoir is turned on as needed within 12 to 14 seconds, depending on uh, peak demand necessity, and then it turns as the water moves back down the hill, it moves the turbine, and this creates electric power. It's 100% reliable. Uh, it's also expensive to build. And the problem is that Japan has the most pumped storage worldwide at 26 gigawatts, or 26.8 megawatts, 26,800 uh, megawatts. But where they're located, they're, sometimes they're not located in certain areas. They're, not, they're virtually nowhere to be found in Hokkaido except for um, two small sites. They're nowhere in Tohoku uh, or Hokuriku of any sizable. They're absolutely nowhere in Okinawa. Uh, therefore, if you want to deal with the intermittency issue, you have to build them. And they've looked into this already, and what they found is that, once again, where are you going to put these sites? How much is it going to cost? Who is going to protest? How long will this drag out? Once again, the cost of numbers. Nothing in Japan is simple, especially if the idea is you're going to transport to Hokkaido um, on a grid system and try to keep it within a, a quick dispatch of seconds to make sure that the lights don't go out in this country, which is a problem. So my time is up. I'm sorry. Um, I could keep going. But uh, just to give you an idea on conclusions, these are just some tentative thoughts. Um, and they're just for a general idea about Japan's energy situation in general. It's the first thing I would say is that the, comp the current political environment is largely driven by fear, dissolution, and obvious distrust of the government regulatory industry, um, which has generated the, the media impact already into uh, a very positive image uh, of uh, renewable energy. It's 20% renewable power target by 2030 is possibly over-optimistic. Um, the cost of NIMBY is likely to increase the construction uh, and generation costs for all power sources moving forward, especially um, for the density issue in Japan. Japan needs to have a public discussion on what it values most energy security, environmental friendliness, or maintaining their current high standards of living. Uh, and this debate really needs to begin within the Japanese language media, um, which has slowly begun but hasn't really taken off yet. And these are the points that I wanted to uh, raise to you tonight just from a general overall energy situation. I'm sorry I overran my time, but thank you.